for joining us this morning, and if you're listening to the recording, thank you for listening to the recording. Again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 8 this morning, Um, Lord willing, looking at around 29 verses. um, There is one narrative in here that we're probably going to spend a little bit more time on, more so than the other. Before we begin, as always, let us uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's ask him to bless our time. Father, We come before your throne this morning, Lord, and we desperately need your help. Father, right here at this very moment, our hearts need to be tuned towards you, tuned to you. Lord, there are so many things that happened this past week, so many distractions, things that weren't good, things that were good, things that stir our affections more so than our affections for you, Father, we need your help to tune our hearts this morning. As we open up your word, may we be captivated by your glory. Lord, I pray that um, your people this morning would be encouraged as we take a closer look at the life of Jesus in his ministry, and what he came to do and what he came to accomplish. So thankful for our time together this morning. I pray that it will be a blessing. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. So, to recap, we are still deep in the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry. If you remember, he and his disciples, they were sailing this, I'm giving you a quick recap, and as they were sailing, Jesus is like, I'm gonna take a little nap, y'all are gonna be good, so Jesus takes a nap. Then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus, I'm not sure what kind of person Jesus was, you know, You know, as soon as my head hits the pillow, I'm out, right? Might have taken Jesus a little bit to sleep. We really don't know. But as soon as he fell asleep, this is whenever the storm comes. And whenever the storm comes, his disciples, they freak out a little bit. Why? We had a storm last night. Granted, none of us were in sailboats. We were in our home. But... The wind got up. How did I know that? Because I had limbs knocked down this morning. I think I heard hell last night. It might have been pea size. Again, you know, a, a, a pretty, pretty good storm. But none of us have ever thought to ourselves or said to ourselves, Master, Master, we are perishing. Right? But this is what the disciples did. This is what the disciples said. Jesus woke up at that point, gave them a little rebuke for having such little faith, But then he also rebuked the wind and he rebuked the waves. And the disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were still trying to figure Jesus out. Having seen and been a part of what everything Jesus has done in his short ministry time, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Interestingly enough, The text, if I remember correctly, said that the disciples were fearful and amazed. Not at the storm, 
at what Jesus did, right? Fearful and amazed. We're going to talk a little bit more later about fear because there is a fear, a good fear that every one of us should have in the presence of Christ, the presence of God. So his earthly ministry continues. He is performing miracles. He is showing a broken, suffering world his redeeming power. What would you say Jesus' primary concern during his ministry was? Was that primary concern human suffering? We have to think about what Jesus came to do. Did he come to relieve the poor, the destitute? Did he primarily come to heal the sick, to cause the blind to see? What say you? No, very good. So, it's important because this is a very common narrative that we see in today's world. Jesus was primarily concerned with human suffering. Yes and no. Jesus was primarily concerned with the salvation of souls. If you remember what he says in Luke 19, eventually we will get there. But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. His one message was repent and believe the gospel. So again, along the way, he did encounter multitudes of sick. He, uh, the, the lame, the blind, other physical suffering people were brought before him and he did heal them, heal them. This is what one commentator has to say about this subject of Jesus' primary concern and his primary focus of his ministry. Physical healings were vivid displays of both Jesus' power and his compassion. They pointed to something, though. They, they, in and of themselves, they were just like, okay, Jesus healed. That, that's, that's a wonderful thing. They did something. They were proof of his deity. They were living demonstrations of his divine authority. They established his unlimited ability to liberate anyone and everyone from the bondage, the penalty, the consequence of sin. As such, the healing ministry of Jesus was illustrative of the gospel, a true expression of divine compassion and a definite verification of his messianic credentials. There is no denial that Jesus healed the lame, the sick, the blind, etc. It pointed to his deity, but his primary concern was the salvation of souls. And that's important because if you, if you go into the Gospels with a particular lens of what Jesus did, that particular lens that you're seeing these scriptures with, it's going to affect many other parts of scripture. Like, it's probably, if, if Jesus, his primary focus is not the salvation of souls, then most likely a person who sees Jesus' primary focus as um, human suffering and, 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 and relieving them of that, they're probably not going to have a good idea or even a good knowledge of why people need to come to be saved. Why did Jesus even save people? Right? It's, it's all about meeting needs, but not their biggest need, which is their spiritual disease. Jesus did not come to meet 
the physical needs of the people, but the spiritual needs of the people. So as I said a little bit ago, we're going to be in 26 through 55 today. If I could have a volunteer read for us 26 through 33. Very good. Thank you so much, Glenda. Who remembers Joel preaching through this passage that was in Mark? Do y'all remember that? Okay, wonderful, because I'm, I'm trying to tie in something there a little bit later. Thank you for saying so. So, Jesus and his disciples, they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. This is opposite Galilee. And the text says, if you look there in 27, it says, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met a man from him from the city who had demons. Now, taking a look at the text there, raise your hand for me and I'll call on you. What description do we see of the garrison demoniac? What are, some, what are some of the things we see about him? He was bound. He was bound. Okay, good. What else do we see? He didn't wear any clothes. It's very interesting. Yeah. What else? Homeless. He was homeless. Absolutely. Uh, another passage, I believe, it might be a Mark or it might be a Matthew's account. He lived among the tombs. Okay. Anyone else? What do we see? What was his name? Legion. Okay. How many soldiers were in a legion during those times. Anyone take a guess? 700? Anywhere from six to 8,000, okay? So, six to 8,000 soldiers were in a legion. Many would say, it's possibly that's how many demons were inside of this one man. We're also gonna talk about in a second, was it one man or was it two men? Because... There's another gospel account that says two men. We're going to talk about that in a second as well. That's important. So many demons had entered this one man that is highlighted. Looking at verse 28, whenever he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Looking then at verse 30, uh, 31, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, there's some things I want to highlight from the dialogue of the demon-possessed man that's highlighted and Jesus. Demons know who Jesus is. 
Do we agree with that? Clearly, demons know who Jesus is. They know him by, by name. They refer to him as son of the most high God. You know, it's interesting, if you look, <clears throat> it might be in this passage, it might be in another passage, but in the NASB, uh, which is another uh, 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 translation that I like, you know, it refers to Jesus as teacher or Rabboni, and sometimes teacher is capitalized, Rabboni sometimes is capitalized. You know, why didn't they say Jesus teacher or uh, Jesus Rabboni? It's like this is what everyone else really called them at this point. Even his disciples at this point really hasn't, haven't connected all the dots that Jesus was the son of the most high God. They were still trying to figure things out. They were slow like I am, right? It, it takes them a while to kind of figure things out. But the demons referred to Jesus as son of the most high God. This reminds me of what the passage says in James 2 about what demons believe. Anyone know that one? Demons believe and they shudder, absolutely. So you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. So demons know who Jesus is, that's important. Demons also know their place in the presence of Christ, okay? How do we know that? The text says that they fell down before Jesus in submission. Have you ever... Have you ever uh, had a dog or visited uh, maybe a friend who had a dog? And this dog was like, it looked like a tough dog. And my brother has a pit bull that I'm having to take care of right now. But the, the pit bull, I remember whenever he would bring the pit bull around, just because of the, um, the history that you have heard about pit bulls and how dangerous they are. Anybody a pit bull owner in here? Yeah, okay, just one. That probably says it right there. You know, not many of us want a pit bull, right? Because we've heard they could be dangerous. And my brother had a, he's probably around 80, 100 pounds, something like that. He's a, he's a, he's a big pit bull. But as soon as you go near him, he's the kind of dog that would just roll over in submission and show his belly, right? And you've seen big dogs like that that do that. This is what I envision for these demons, Right? They didn't roll over like a dog, but in the presence of Christ, they bowed down. They fell to the ground. Why? They know their place. Just as my brother's pit bull, right? You come in, he's, he, he's big, and he might have a big bark, um, but if you get near him and go down to pet him, he's going to roll over, and he's going to expose that belly. He's, he's, he's in submission. He's giving in. The demons could not help but bow to Jesus as Lord, even before he exercised them. That's important too. I remember, um, I don't post very much on Facebook, but I am on Facebook. Um, I remember coming across a, a picture um, on Facebook. Um, have you ever seen the, the kind of posts that were like, you know, if you follow Jesus, share, or if you follow Jesus, press like. And if you don't, then you're not a very good Christian, right? Okay, you're like, man, is my, is my salvation, is it in jeopardy? I'm not sharing this, I'm not sharing this photo. But this one picture had um, a very dainty image of Jesus in a very muscular and yoked, jacked, 
picture of the devil, and they were arm wrestling. Have y'all seen this? No? It's ridiculous. I just, I shake my head. It comes up every now and then. But again, Jesus, fair-skinned, wearing a right robe, very dainty-looking, arm wrestling with Satan. Again, looks like a bodybuilder. And according to interpretation, you know, they're both in the middle. It's like they're struggling back and forth. Is that a reality? Absolutely not. There, it, it is not a reality, but this is how people see Jesus. Fair, dainty. And also, Satan equal in power and authority to Christ. But again, this is not the reality for the kingdom of darkness. Okay, one does not exercise a power or authority that is equal to the king of kings and lord of lords. The kingdom of darkness, one commentator says, Satan, his minions, the demons can only act according to the sovereign permission. That's important. And power of the triune God. They know that he has absolute power over them and he can choose to either cast them out or not. John Calvin about this. Very same narrative says, hence we infer that the whole of Satan's kingdom is subjective to the authority of Christ. So demons know Christ by name and demons know their place in the presence of Christ. It is not a power or authority that is equal to Christ. They are in submission to him. They fell before him. They begged Jesus not to cast them into the abyss. So demons know, third point, they know their coming doom. They know what's awaiting them. In this encounter, Legion begged Jesus not to torment them or to throw them into the abyss. And the abyss is really just a, a, another word that's synonymous for bottomless pit, really symbolic of hell itself. But Jesus, um, in the presence of Jesus, the demons know he is more powerful, he has authority over us, he has the ability to cast us into the abyss, they know what is awaiting for them for final torment. And really, I would like to think that they know how it ends, just like we know how it ends, right? And because they know how it ends, at this point, they were like, all right, Jesus, are, are, you, are you here to torment us now, or, or is that gonna be for later, right? It's like, what are you gonna do with us? Is it the abyss? Ooh, or is it a herd of pigs? That's a better option than the abyss. So, the demons knew that Jesus would not allow them to remain in this man to cause destruction, to cause havoc, to ruin lives, essentially. So they asked Jesus for permission to enter into a large herd of pigs that was nearby. Looking back at 32 through 33, now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man, entered the pigs, and the herd rushed into the steep bank, into the lake, and they drowned. All right, so question here, putting on our thinking caps. If Jesus is dealing with pigs here, if there's pigs in this scene, Obviously, there, this is a town, Gerasene is a town, and there's pigs there, 
there is some sort of economic value, right? People are raising them for the purposes of food, maybe for, I'm not sure why else you would raise pigs, but food sounds really good because bacon is awesome. So, but what does this tell us about this area? Gentile, very good. So, because pigs were in this area, the herdsmen, the town, probably primarily Gentile. And since it is a Gentile territory, we really see a good example of what Jesus commissioned his disciples and us to do, right? Go into all the nations, preach the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them. We see Jesus going to a Gentile, primarily a Gentile territory, and he is ministering, he is going there, he is making himself known. And we're not, according to the Luke passage, we're not given the number of pigs, it says large herd, but in Matthew's account, it says large herd, if I'm not mistaken. In Mark's account, however, it says about 2,000 pigs. So thinking about legion, right, six to 8,000 soldiers, 2,000 pigs, right, demon, uh, Jesus exercised these demons, legion, out of these men, or these men, as we'll talk about in just a second, into these 2,000 pigs. It was a lot of demons. That's the point I'm trying to make. There's a, there's a lot of demons. And what's interesting about this passage is, is it may be the same people that really look at Jesus' ministry and say, oh, he, he was all about human suffering, not the salvation of souls. It might be those same people that say, and they think very critically of Jesus at this point whenever they see what he does to these pigs. But they charge Jesus with destroying the property of other people, right? These pigs, I can't even imagine. 2,000 pigs, I mean, Ted, you, where you at? Ted Young, there you are. You deal with cattle, 2,000 head of cattle. That's a significant amount of money. I mean, whenever you think about pigs, I'm thinking a pig, as far as meat goes, isn't as big as a, as a cow or, or, or a steer, so the economic value probably wouldn't be as much, but this is a lot of money. So people look at what Jesus did, and they're like, how dare you, Jesus? You, you just ruined some herdsman's life. You just ruined the lives of so many people. The, these pigs... Their value was a lot of money. And you just destroyed the property of other people and you are worthy of blame because of that. If someone presented that to you, how would you respond? If, well, they went into the sea. They're, they're, they're going to they're gonna be waterlogged, but could be. They're feral hogs. They're feral hogs. Yeah, yeah, they're nasty anyways, right? At least I think they are. What would you say to someone? Right? That's true. Yeah, it, it, it does. Lisa, very good, Suzanne. That's a good point. Yep. He was part of the town. Go into these pigs, and then the pigs acted the way they did. 
Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about in just a second the response because they respond differently. It's like, I mean, interestingly enough, the, the previous narrative, the one we're on now, the next one with Jarius' daughter, and I believe even the next one, like, fear is mentioned a lot. And the people in fear respond in a certain way. Thinking about the ownership and Jesus being worthy of blame who ultimately owns these pigs? God owns all these pigs. Ted? Yeah. That's right. That's very true. That, that is a good point. So thinking about the economic loss, thinking about ownership, Jesus is God, and as God, he owns everything. I'm going to read for you guys Psalm 50. 10 through 12, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. I know all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So, while the death of the pigs is clearly an economic loss for the owner, God is the ultimate owner, but also the person who has that narrative like showing more concern for the economic loss is dismissing the fact that that man or men's life had infinite value and worth made in the image of God. In thinking about Joel and whenever he preached through Mark, I was talking to him on Friday about this up here at the church, like, there's one thing that I remember from that sermon, and I have a terrible memory, but I remember one thing from, him, from his sermon, one point. It's the value that Jesus saw for one soul. Thinking about the economic loss, how much those pigs must have cost the owner, this soul that was suffering, this garrison man that the Gentiles had dismissed, as Ted said, Jesus sees the infinite worth and value because that man is made in the image of God. And taking a look, or thinking about, rather, the death of the pigs, that is a huge loss. It is no match for the value of a human life. So we must think about something else here because now we're going to go to Matthew's account. Let's go to Matthew 8. 28, around there or so. There's two things to note from Matthew's account here. There's, there's two discrepancies, variances, that a Bible critic may bring to your attention. And we must be prepared so, look with me there, verse 28 of Matthew 8. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, is that the same area that we said a little bit ago? It's, there's a difference there. Two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. 
And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? We are talking about the same incident. Again, but there's two different regions that are mentioned here. The Gerasenes and the Gadarenes, if I'm even pronouncing that right. And there's not one man that is presented here. There are two men. So who got it right? Like, most likely the most, not the most scholarly Bible critic there is, but someone might come to you and be like, the Bible is full of contradictions. You know, you, you the, the, clearly this is the same parable, but who got it right, right? It's, it's Gerasenes, it's Gadarenes, it's two men, it's one man. What is it? And I think it's important for us to understand if it's separate regions. Why do Mark and Luke say there's one demoniac while Matthew says there's two? So, after further research, believe it or not, these two regions are the same, the Gadarenes and the Gerasenes, okay? And the best way that I think that I can uh, help us understand that is this road, this main thoroughfare that we're off of, what's the name of that area? What's the name of that road? 920 and Peaster Highway. Have you heard of it, heard uh, Peaster Highway? We've heard of that before, I have too. Have you heard of it as 920? I have too, okay? Um, it's the same road, right? And oftentimes, in biblical times, you know, there were Hebrew speakers and, and, and Greek speakers and like the names were different, but they both meant the same. There's, there's an example, okay? Another thing to note about that is the two men, okay? So Peaster Highway, FM20, it's common. Then it's common now, those two areas mean the same. Two men, was it one, was it two? There were two men that were delivered by demons, or uh, from demons by Jesus, and there was no contradiction in these accounts. Um, the writers are doing something that you and I do all the time. Whenever you tell a story to someone because of who they are, you might phrase it differently or put it differently or leave out certain details or add certain details than you would speaking to another person. Case in point, I'm into cars, I love cars. I know another fellow here who loves cars and his name is Charlie McCarty, okay? And if I wanna talk to someone here at the church, another person is Sean McNeil, right, boom. If I wanna talk cars with these guys, these, these are the men. You know who I, I'm not, not gonna talk about cars with? My lovely wife, okay? I, I love Julie. She, she, God has blessed me immensely uh, with her as, as my bride. She has many gifts and talents, and one of them is not knowledge of cars, okay? If I'm looking at a car, I'm gonna leave out significant details because it's my wife, and cars have a motor, and cars go forward and backwards, and cars have colors, and that's about it, right, babe? Yeah. But if I'm talking with Sean McNeil or Charlie, or, or Charlie McCarty, I am going to 
list the kind of motor. I'm going to list the transmission, six-speed manual, the kind of exhaust. Does it have forced induction, supercharger? Is it turbocharged? Is it NA, right? All these different things. I'm going to leave out stuff, okay? Or I'm not going to leave out anything, but with Julie, I am. It's the same thing. You have, you have two different men with two different personalities speaking to different audiences that have different ways of telling stories. There's two men. There's two men. But for some reason, Luke decided to say, one man and only put the emphasis in, in highlighting that one man. But there were two men. But for some reason, again, again Luke is like, I'm just going to highlight this one. And we don't know why. But we do this too. We do it all the time. We leave out details. We add details depending upon who the audience is, etc. So one commentator says this. Matthew wants to briefly emphasize the power of Jesus over a massive demonic presence and that locals wanted Jesus to leave. Whereas Mark and Luke shares Matthew's interest but want to add the significant detail of what one of the two men did in response to, to Jesus delivering them and what Jesus said to that man. We must remember that because one account may supplement, it does not imply a contradiction. There is nothing in either Mark or Luke's record that suggests only one man. So looking at Luke's record of this one incident, is there anything in this passage that suggests, besides the highlighting of one man, that it could be not more than one man? Is there anything there? Absolutely. The one man that Luke decided to highlight there's nothing in the text that says it was only one man and there wasn't two there, right? I think that's important for us to distinguish. So, going a little bit further, and I'm, I'm not going to be able to get to probably the, the second part of our text today. That's okay. Thinking about demon possession, the garrison demoniac, why don't we see demon possession like this today? Interesting, after the pandemic, I saw an article that said that the Roman Catholic Church, the amount of exorcisms that they were doing have increased. Have we seen videos of people saying that they have the power given by God to exorcise demons? John, I know you have. You've seen them, I've heard, I know, I've seen them too. Why don't we see demon possession like this today? Or do we? A buddy of mine, pastor, seminarian professor, he went to Africa for six months. His name is Joe. And I remember recalling a story of Joe whenever he went to this remote village in Africa that he he was with the translator and, and, and people from the town and it was like dusk and he could see like this black cloud like hovering over the village and it would go to one tent or one, one uh, hut and it would like go inside and it would pop right back out and it would go to another one and it would hover around this one central hut in this area 
And the translator and the people in the towns were like, that's where the witchcraft person lives. And we believe that thing that you see are, are demons. Okay, very interesting. Why don't we see that kind of stuff in the West? Are people demon-possessed today? What do you think? And you can just speak out. You, th- you think there's demon possession today, Brian? Okay, yeah. Okay, could be, could be. Thank you, Richie. Ted. It could hinge on your eschatology. It could. Uh, I'm going to talk about that, uh, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you, Ted. That's a good segue. <clears throat> so, you, we do see less encounter with demon possessions it's primarily in the Gospels, but if you were to list on a piece of paper the amount of demon po- possession and exorcism that Jesus or the disciples or apostles, they do, it's very few. There's like two instances, Acts 5 and Acts 8, right? Um, you don't really see anything else in the epistles about demon possession. You, you, we re- read things about like doctrines of demons, right? We read things like in 1 Peter where it says Satan prowls around like a roaring lion looking for people to devour. Like we read these things, if you look in the patristics, the early church fathers, there's not many occasions where they write about demon possession and exorcism. Um, There are things like demonology and doctrines of demons, right, where where it's it's good that these early church fathers were equipping the saints about demons because Satan is real. But to what Ted said, there is a passage in Mark, um, Mark chapter three. It's whenever Jesus is challenged by the scribes um, about his authority. They charge that it was from Beelzebub. And Jesus makes a point like, why would I be in cahoots with Satan if I'm trying to defeat Satan, or I'm, I'm, I came to defeat Satan. It's very interesting, but this story, this specific one, Jesus came, says that he came to bind the strong man, right? He is the stronger man, this text in Mark chapter three says, and he came to bind the strong man. Strong man is Satan. Jesus is the stronger man. But I think one reason why we don't see demon possession today and 
we could probably speak weeks about this, is because the death and resurrection of Jesus, something changed. And we, because of that reality, and because of Jesus defeating sin and death, there is, there is a, we don't, we don't see it. Can it happen? Sure. It, it probably can happen. Right? We, I'm not even sure. Let me tell you what R.C. Sproul says. Because I'm leaning on the shoulders of someone else because, again, we don't see this a lot. And I haven't studied it to the extent that R.C. has. This is what he says. One explanation given for the concentration of demons' possession is that during Jesus' earthly ministry, all hell broke loose. That is to say, Satan, whose power was under attack with the presence of Christ, marshaled all of his minions, his host of demons, to manifest his satanic power in the region where the Son of God carried out his ministry. Okay, so all hell broke loose, one theory. Second theory is this. When the New Testament writers talked about demon possession, it was simply a pre-scientific diagnosis of dementia or insanity. That's another theory that R.C. is saying. Okay? In other words, we now recognize this erratic behavior as um, lunacy, not some actual um, uh, inhabiting of demons into a person by alien spirits. He goes, however, whenever you look at the pages of the New Testament carefully, the authors did make a clear distinction between the category of lunacy and the category of demon possession. They did not blend the two into a confused mass. Rather, the biblical account is a sober one. The demonic world is real, okay? It was extremely active then, and it is active today, but it's differently. I think the enemy is the same, but the strategies of the enemy are different today than they were in Jesus' time. So, you know, R.C. is like, R.C. isn't saying it can't happen. R.C. is saying it can happen, okay? R.C. is also saying one theory might be all hell broke loose. Another theory is people were just crazy back then, and that's what they attributed demonic possession to, okay? So interesting about those things with uh, demonic possession. Um, again, the enemy is real. His strategy, in my opinion, is different. All right, so we must fast forward. I probably prepared about a two-hour Sunday school lesson today. So <clears throat> let's talk about some application really fast. I'll close this in a word of prayer. So how can this help us today? We really didn't make it through the entire section you know, we're told that the, the, the herdsmen, the town people, they were afraid. They told Christ to leave, leave this area. You destroyed our pigs, our livelihood, and it's really scary because the man that Jesus healed was now sitting at his feet, right? And he wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you can't go with us. Stay here and declare all that God has done for you. So application, okay. Jesus was and is the Son of God. Amen and amen. Jesus is still a healer. Amen. Jesus was and is triumph over unclean spirits. Jesus still rescues the, uh, the, the perishing. He cares for the dying. He liberates captives. He gives hope to the hopeless. And 
uh, Gentile people then and for us today. Jesus is the lover of souls, so much love that he would disregard the high value of 2,000 pigs for two souls. For you, if you are in Christ, Jesus cares about your soul so much that he would disregard the high value of his own life. Reading from Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and close. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your amazing power, your glory that we see um, illustrated, given in uh, the Gospels. Father, the same God um, that walked the earth, Jesus, is the same God that is sitting at the right hand of the Father at this very moment. The author and perfecter of our faith, who intercedes, who loves our souls, who cares for our souls even to this day. Father, we pray for corporate worship this morning. May it be glorifying to you. May our hearts continue to be tuned to sing of your praises, to remember your wondrous works that you've done for us. And uh, Lord, may we declare and proclaim that glory to the nations. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.